time at uh, the end of the message. I'm going to preach to you tonight from Psalm 142, the 142nd Psalm. I, I don't have a PowerPoint for you tonight. This will be, uh, in fact, this will, this, the uh, style of this sermon will perhaps sound just a little bit different from what I normally do. I, I'm not giving you a visual outline chart or any technical notes or anything like that. This is a, has a little bit more of a devotional flair uh, tonight. And the name, uh, the title of our study is Comfort in the Cave. Uh, this is a psalm that I believe parallels the passage we were studying this morning, uh, or I should say that branches off of it. It seems as though Psalm 142 was written out of the circumstances that we studied in 1 Samuel 24. Caves. We talked this morning about two kings in a cave, and tonight this passage, this prayer, is from one of those kings. Caves are very interesting places. Most of us don't frequent them very much at all. Uh, uh, there are a number of reality television shows that I don't watch, but <laughs> that are out there right now that focus on people living off-grid. Have you seen some of these bizarre things and these uh, burly people who live in, under trees and under rocks and things like that? Inevitably, you'll find at least one guy on these series who's living in a cave somewhere in Nevada or it could be in the Appalachians who spends his days foraging for food, scavenging supplies, and eschewing baths at all costs. That was a joke. Um, <laughs> caves are intriguing places. They can be beautiful. They can be frightening, fun to visit sometimes. But most of us would not want to live there. And even if you do live there, you probably have chosen to do that because you want to be featured on one of the off-grid shows. <laughs> but it's a di very different thing if you're living in a cave because you have to, that you've sought refuge, uh, you're being hunted this evening's message is about a caveman like that and his plight. Psalm 142 is uh, included in a string of prayers that are laments from Psalm 140 to 144. All five of those are laments, complaints about distress that the psalmist find themselves in. And this is perhaps one of the most personal of the five. And this one unlike the others, has a special superscription, a special heading that gives us a little background. Look with me at the beginning of the, the psalm above verse 1. It says, Moschiel of David, when he was in the cave, a prayer. That word Moschiel is a Hebrew word left untranslated because its exact meaning is debated, but it seems to mean something like skillful, suggesting to commentators that it either means this song was designed for a skillful musician or maybe it's to be understood that this is a song that will cause you to be skillful in life if you take it to heart. And in fact, I think it's true. We have some things to learn from David's plight and his prayer. The parallel to this psalm we actually studied a couple months ago, uh, the first time we found David in a cave in the books of Samuel, and uh, Psalm 57, which I keep your place here in Psalm 142, just flip back briefly to Psalm 57, and there's another one of the headings that tells us the historical background. 
Psalm 57, for the choir director set to Al-Tasheth, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. And I can't prove which uh, event Psalm 57 comes from or Psalm 142 comes from, but I like to think that Psalm 57 is, relates to when David first fled from Saul and went to the cave of Adullam. And that Psalm 142 is about what we studied this morning when David was near Engedi and Saul and his 3,000 men came pursuing him. There's a strong connection between these psalms, the painful prayer about enemies and plots and death on every corner. Derek Kidner said that being hated and hunted is almost too much and faith is at full stretch for David in this psalm. David, as you know, is on, has been exiled by jealous Saul, and this persecution of Saul is something that would last for some years. It's debated the exact number. I think some of the best estimates are up to seven years that David would end up being on the run from King Saul. This period of exile was so intense that it led to the composition of at least eight psalms, and I suppose perhaps more that have not been labeled with that historical background. It was a significantly spiritual period for David where he was learning to trust in God's promises and wait on God for the fulfillment of those promises. Well, I'd like us to read the rest of Psalm 142. We've seen the heading. Let's read the seven verses. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison, so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now may God bless the reading and study of his word. One way to summarize the prayers that David utters here is this lesson. When we feel endangered and deserted, we must remember that God is our ever-present security and our safest position. When we are endangered and deserted, we must remember that God is our greatest security and our safest position. This psalm we just read alternates between making pleas and calling for God's attention to, on the next phrase, expressing confidence and strong faith in the Lord, and then pouring out a complaint about the trouble he's in, and then making a petition, and then making a vow. It, there's a lot of back and forth of these ideas. I, if I was to give you a, a visual outline of it, there would be three columns, because there are three main movements of the psalm. There's an opening cry for help in verses 1 and 2. 
And then in verses 3 to 5, there are details about the circumstances, about the entrapment that he's found himself in. And then it ends in verses 6 and 7 with a final prayer and a vow that when the Lord delivers him, he will bring a thank offering and publicly acknowledge what the Lord has done for him. I suppose that these are prayers that David uttered before Saul came in the cave, when there was still but one king in the cave, and David waiting and wondering whether his enemy might find him. Uh, Now, I just told you there are three movements to the psalm. I'm going to give a sermon outline that's a little different. I'm going to take five principles from this psalm. And um, uh, the the first of them in verses 1 and 2 teaches us this. When it seems that God is silent, he is all ears. When it seems that God is silent, God is all ears. In the first two verses, there are several parallel statements. It's an emphatic, emotional, poetic expression about how David is earnestly seeking God. He was doing a lot of praying in that time of distress. There really wasn't much left for him to do. He was not permitted by the Lord to organize a military campaign against Saul. He was waiting on God to bring down the king that he had foretold would uh, had lost the kingdom. There he is in a cave. Can you imagine what those strong cries must have sounded like in the cave? Charles Spurgeon said, caves make good closets for prayer. Their gloom and solitude are helpful to the exercise of devotion. In the loneliness of the cave, he could use his voice as much as he pleased, and therefore he made its gloomy vaults echo with appeals to heaven. Look at verse 1 with me. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. Parallel statements, essentially meaning the same thing. It is interesting that he refers to God in the third person. He's talking about his prayers to the Lord in in this verse and the next. He's reflecting on it. And remember that uh, these, these prayers, these psalms, are likely composed after the events that they describe. David is reflecting on that experience and the things that he cried out in prayer to the Lord. And some of the very words of those original prayers would find their way into the musical uh, compositions he would write later. With my voice, twice that's used there in verse 1. With my voice, with my voice. Um, Interesting thought here. In the Bible, there are almost no references to silent prayer. And that's not to say that it's wrong to pray silently, but the common practice of Hebrew people and even Gentiles in the New Testament was to pray aloud. Uh, Now, there's times you can't do that, obviously, uh, and they they couldn't do it either, but it's not unusual for him to say. What makes this more forceful is the aloud part, the crying aloud. Imagine what it would have been like to hear those strong prayers echoing in that cave. And then in verse 2, he, re- he rebounds these ideas. Uh, I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. That, that second line explains what the first line meant. He's not complaining about God. He's not sending up some quick prayer to heaven's complaint department. No, Spurgeon said we may complain to God, but not of God. Another term for complaint here is uh, lament. 
he's describing the stress that he's in and he's appealing to God as if to say, this is not right. Something must be done. I need your help. Prayer is work for sure. You know, uh, we labor together in prayer. A prayer can be require exertion, but not all prayer is equally hard. Sometimes I think we read phrases like this, I pour out my complaint, and some Christians will mistakenly think that every prayer they make must be a grand emotional display. That if you don't be, if you're not fervent uh, enough in every prayer that it's not heard or it's not good enough, that's not so. Most of David's prayers would not have been the pouring out, a very picturesque way of unloading things that were burdening him. We ought to be frequent in prayer, whether it requires great fervor or not. We don't need to create artificial crises in prayer in order to be heard. But the more familiar we are with the Lord in prayer, the more fervent our prayers will be in times of distress. And we'll be confident that indeed he does hear. David is not calling and crying because he thinks God doesn't hear him. He knows he does. And so we remember then, in times of when we feel abandoned, deserted, and endangered, when it seems that God is silent, remember, he's all ears. He hears, and as the Psalms say in other places, his ears are attentive to their cries. Come with me to verses 3 and 4. I'll see another principle from the psalm. When no one else is there, he is our confidant. When no one else is there, he is our confidant. The third verse begins the prayer proper. That is where David begins to speak directly to God. In the third verse, he uh, teaches about confidence in God for our troubles. Confidence in God. He says, uh, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. Maybe we shouldn't translate that in the past tense. Uh, the English Standard Version and some others render it. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. This is something that is characteristically true. When I come to an end in myself and I have no resources and no help, you are not lost. You know where I am. I am not lost. And I'm not alone. Mighty David. David who slew Goliath, David who routed the Philistines again and again, here he is overwhelmed. Spurgeon said David was a hero and yet his spirit sank. He could smite a giant down, but he could not keep himself up. He did not know his own path, nor feel able to bear his own burden. Observe his comfort. He looked away from his own condition to the ever-observant, all-knowing God. And he solaced himself with the fact that all was known to his heavenly friend. Truly, it is well for us to know that God knows what we do not know. We lose our heads, but God never closes his eyes. Our judgments lose their balance, but the eternal mind is always clear. You know my path, says David, referring to the path of adversity and difficulty that he'd been traveling. God knew every step Every time they had to run and pack up stuff and head away from Saul, every time that they were snitched on and found out 
and had to flee, God knew it all. God knew where David was. God knew where the trouble was. David certainly didn't know what was ahead of him. He didn't even understand everything that was behind him. And it wasn't his fault either. It wasn't that David, if David had prayed more, he would have had greater clarity. It was not that he had failed to discern God's will and therefore he'd gotten into these messes. No. He was just in a multi-month-long mess. David is saying here, you know my path, meaning he is trusting the all-knowing mind of God. God knows what we stumble on before we even encounter it. God is not surprised by our troubles. God is not anxious when we come into troubles. Now, don't mishear me. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care. That's a different thought. He most certainly cares. But he's not worried. And that ought to dispel so much worry for us. The tortured roads we travel are not lost on God's map. You know my path. And the way where I walk, they had hidden a trap for me. I didn't know what lay ahead. Here is the first specific statement about his trouble. A trap. There are other statements like this in the Psalms, like Psalm 140, verse 6. Uh, no, actually, that's not the right spot. Don't look at that verse. It's a good verse, but it's not the one I want. <laughs> um, verses no, Psalm 141, verses 9 and 10. Uh, Keep me from the jaws of the trap which they have set for me, and from the snares of those who do iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. His complaint, you see, is not with God. It's with people. It's with people like Saul and his henchmen and even the people of Judah who keep reporting on him to Saul. I mean, David is from Judah and the Judeans turn out to be some of his most staunch opponents. This trap word that's used here is, uh, describes a spring trap that would be used for animals. Here it's not used in a literal sense and it's not a literal road. It's referring to all of that political and personal intrigue that had befallen David as he fell out of sorts with Saul. As Saul enraged in his mind by his own iniquity and fueled by an evil spirit led him to more and more sin. David didn't see all this coming, but he consoles himself that God knew it was coming. Take, take comfort, dear ones. God knows. He, he knew before you ever fell into a problem. And so when you find the traps and the problems that spring on you, direct your eyes back to the Lord, for he knew about it all along and has a design to bring you through it. Confidence in God in troubles. That's verse 3. And verse 4 is confiding with God in troubles. Look how he draws the Lord in close to himself. Verse 4. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. Now, when he says look to the right, he doesn't mean there's only trouble on the right and none on the left. That This is a, using the language of legal courts. If you were to go into a court and plead your case, you would have an advocate on your right hand who would uh, speak on your behalf to the judge. 
uh, or to the council and who could navigate the law and bring you through. Well, David, in this ongoing distress, has no one like that. Yes, he has friends. It's not that he's absolutely alone. Um, he has Jonathan, who is praying for him and encouraging him. He has with him 600 men who are sort of a ragtag bunch, some of whom are not so godly, some of whom give him some pretty bad counsel, we saw this morning. But by and large, everyone else is against him. Even his own tribespeople are against him. That's the sense of what he's getting at. There is no one who regards me. You know, people know about my problems and they don't do anything about it. They don't want to get involved. Too messy to involve themselves. There's no escape for me, he says at the end of, uh, near the middle of verse 4. A more literal rendering, like the New King James in this phrase, is refuge has failed me. Uh, Now, interesting, think where David is when he says that. He's in a cave, which is, he's there for refuge, but, you know, being holed up in a cave in the time of distress, this is not exactly a royal citadel. This is no Helm's Deep. (laughs) This is natural hole in the rock that he's trying to hide like an animal. He was like a refugee without a refuge. You ever feel like that? You're trying to find something to cover you, hide away from the trouble you're going through. Over a long period, David had that feeling. The cave he was in was not that much of a refuge. Yeah, he could hide, but uh, he's sharing these holes in the rocks with ibex and cave badgers. And then there was that rough crowd of not-so-always-pious associates who were tented out with him. Verse 4 teaches that when no one else is there, God is our confidant. Come with me to verse 5. When we have nothing else, he is all we need. When we have nothing else, he is all we need. Verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. My refuge. Now, back in verse 4, he said, uh, I gave you a literal rendering, refuge has failed me. There is no escape for me, but literally, refuge has failed me. I don't have a refuge, but here he says, I do have a refuge. And interestingly, there are two separate Hebrew words. As if to say, I don't have that kind of refuge, the sort of refuge that I, in the physical sense, would like to have, but I do have a refuge in another sense. I have the Lord with me. John Wesley, in his famous hymn, one of his famous hymns, has the line, Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. You are my refuge, even though, in one sense, I don't have one. And he also says of the Lord, you are my portion in the land of the living. My portion. This refers to real estate. Every Israelite family was granted a portion, a plot of land. Some had more, some had less. Some might, according to the law, they could uh, 
loan it out to recover debts and things. They might lose it for a time, but it was supposed to be their families always. And David, uh, well, he's not enjoying much real estate right now. Can't go home to Bethlehem. It's not safe there. Can't go back to the capital of Gibeah. That's not safe. Here he is in a cave. What kind of a home is that? In the land of the living, the land of Israel, he's deprived of home and happiness. Worse, death threatens him in this land of the living. His only claim in life was really all that he needed, and that was God himself. With him, we really have all. And you see, everything physical we have, from our clothing to our homes, our cars, our savings, these things all have value in their place, but their place is not eternal. We are seeking a city on the other side. And David had come to see, even on this side, his portion was the Lord. Uh, David is actually borrowing the language of the Levites when he says this. Several times in the law, it's instructed that the Levites are to going to live differently than the other Israelites. We, we speak about the 12 tribes of Israel, but there aren't really 12. How many are there? I'll give you a hint. It's a baker's dozen. It's actually 13, right? The Levites are the 13th. They have no land. They have cities sprinkled throughout the other tribes, but no land. And the law said that this was for a purpose. Deuteronomy 10, verse 9. Listen to this. Therefore... Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. Earlier in the book of Numbers, chapter 18, verse 20, it said this way, The Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. The Levites were blessed with a uniquely close relationship with God, a literally close relationship. They would, through rotations, serve in tabernacle near the very presence of God. God would be their greatest possession. And though they had no tribal lands like their, the other fellow tribesmen did, they had something more special. I think David takes this thought, and he, uh, someone from the tribe of Judah, and applies it to himself in a spiritual way, makes a principle of it. And there's a spiritual lesson for us in this ceremonial law, that our greatest, most precious, and most certain possession is God himself. And again, having him, we have all. Here's a fourth principle that comes out of verse 6. When we have no recourse, he is all our strength. When we have no recourse, he is all our strength. Verse 6 reads, Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Persecutors, or as another version has it, pursuers. Saul and his men were, in fact, doing that chasing him from place to place. All the entrapment, all the running, all the hiding has depleted David physically, emotionally. 
Now, this is a man who had been a successful warrior who brought down uh, Goliath with the help of God. But in this campaign, he is completely on the defense. He, he is not in any way taking offensive uh, maneuvers. He, he is not permitted by God to take some tactical advantage against Saul and take him out. He is running out of options. If you remember looking at the map of Israel, I mean, David, had he's been over in the been over in the west, he's been kind of up in the north, and now he's over here on the east, and he's down in the south. I mean, he's in no man's land. He's in the land of wild goats. Not many more places he can go. He's reduced to cowering in a cave, and if they find him there, then what? Well, thank God there's nothing too hard for the Lord. In our weakness, his strength shows its might. And it would in this case, as we saw this morning in 1 Samuel 24. David's in the cave, and Saul's in the cave, and Saul doesn't find David. David finds him. And it was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in everyone's eyes. What uh, they did find, David, but what they found more was that God was with him. In fact, David found Saul before Saul found David. And David found that he could trust the Lord and wait on him. One more verse, one more point. Verse 7. When we have no more choices, he is all our hope. When we have no more choices, he is all our hope. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks uh, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. My soul, bring my soul out of prison. He's not just talking psychologically here about his inner being, feeling hemmed in. The, the Hebrew word soul, very often, perhaps more often than not, actually means the whole being. Maybe with a bit of a focus on the inner being being the, the center of your being, but his whole person, he is in a metaphorical prison. I mean, he is in a cave in which he's hiding, and he's doing that because it's the safest place to be. He can't leave and be safe. On another layer, his prison is his situation, this ongoing situation from which there seems to be no end and no escape. Might he even think of this cave as the opening up to Sheol, which would be the ultimate prison. Not that he would go to hell, mind you, but that death could bar him in. Bring me out of all of this. God, bring this to an end. Bring me out into the freedom of life. Bring me out into the promises that you've made about me. The prophecies you've said about me through Samuel and other men of God who have said that I am the one called to lead the nation. This is no way to lead a nation. Bring me out of this. And here's what he promises to do in return, so that I may give thanks to your name. This is a, actually the language of a vow, a vow of public worship. I've told you many times, and I'll say it again, that in the Psalms, the word thanks, give thanks, almost always means to give thanks public acknowledgement. It's the same language used 
in the law about bringing a thank offering. What David intends to do when this distress is over is to go to the presence of God at Tabernacle and bring that free will offering of thanks, a, a suitable sacrifice, and tell the priests why he's there. And you know, David's been on the run for a long time, and he occasionally talks about he's making these promises. That was going to be a beefy day at the Tabernacle when David finally was free. And the result of all this is God would get more glory. It's really to, Lord, it's to your advantage to be faithful to your word. It, you'll gain greater glory. He's not flattering God. He's truly concerned about God's glory. He wants God's glory to be on display in his distress. He's not just concerned about himself. He's concerned about the reputation of God and his word. Much has been said in David's life about David's future. And God must prove himself true. And, and look at the end of the verse, two more phrases. The righteous will surround me. This is actually a difficult phrase to translate. Now you say, well, that looks pretty simple to me. I, I, I suppose uh, if, you, if we keep the translation surround, um, we have to ask, well, what does that mean? They're going to come around, hey, David, glad you're back. You know, it could be the, the surrounding of encouragement. What makes it difficult is this Hebrew word, it's the word kafar, is, um, let me be wax a little technical right here, this is what's called a homonym. That is a word spelled the same way that can have a very different meaning. For instance, I am content after lunch means something very different than there is content in that box. Content and content. They're spelled the same way. Sound kind of the same, very different words. This Hebrew word has three completely different meanings. It's actually three completely different words. And so there's a debate. Well, which one of the three is it? Is it surround me? The righteous will surround me. That's what most of our versions do. Perhaps if that's the idea, then when he goes to give his thank offering, there'll be other righteous people there rejoicing with him and what the Lord has done. That's certainly true. Other Psalms talk about that kind of crowd of companions who rejoice with him. Maybe it's the second alternative, which means to wait. The righteous will wait for me. Hmm. There were other people like Jonathan who were rooting for David and waiting for God's time schedule to come about and bring Saul down and bring David up. Maybe, could be. This word, Cathar, also, how about this? means to crown. The righteous will crown me. Crown me. Given the fact that David's prophecies about David's royalty are on the line, I think it's quite possible that is the meaning in this psalm. The righteous will crown me. David knew that God's promise that he would be king would be fulfilled, that he would not spend all his days cowering in a cave. The troubles he was in were not everlasting. There were certain promises made to him, sure mercies of David, as they're called in another place. And one day, the righteous of the land would see to it to fulfill the word of the Lord. 
and David would be raised up. And it would be a saga as we continue our series in the books of Samuel. We'll see that after the death of Saul, it will take years for David to solidify his throne. But there are the righteous in the land who see, yes, this really was God's choice all along. And David ends by saying, for you will deal bountifully with me. David held on to those promised mercies of God that were first uttered over him when Samuel visited Bethlehem and told Jesse, let me see your boys, the Lord's anointed is here. It was echoed again by as Samuel confronted Saul repeatedly, telling him, the Lord has taken, rent the kingdom from you and has given it to someone better than you. Again and again, these words of prophecy were made to Saul, made and reinforced to David. But boy, for years, it looks like nothing like that's going to happen. David holds on because he knows when it seems like we have no more choices, he is all our hope. This psalm teaches us that when we are endangered, and deserted, we need to remember that God is our greatest possession and our safest position. Whether we are in a cave or in a field or in a car, whether we're all alone or feeling alone in the midst of a great crowd, God is there. Now, you and I don't have the exact same promises made to us that David had made to him. He had some special promises, unique promises. We are promised that we will reign, rule and reign with Christ, but uh, that's not Samuel knocking on your door and telling you you're going to be the leader of a particular nation. No, God made uh, unique promises, what are called elsewhere again, the sure mercies of David. God has anointed, not anointed any of us to be king of Israel, but there are exceedingly great and precious promises that have been made to us in the gospel promises that we all share together. God has not anointed us to be king, no, but he has given us an anointing from the Holy One. We are small a anointed ones because we are followers of the anointed one, David's greatest son, our Lord Jesus. God has all sorts of purposes for us and all sorts of promises, um, many of them long-range, and we don't know what all his purposes are from day to day, what God does. He has purposes for us in this age and in the age to come. Neither God's heavenly nor his earthly purposes can ever be thwarted. He knows our way. There's an old saying that says, we are immortal <laughs> until God is finished with us. David didn't begin this psalm so upbeat. If you look again in the early verses, there's a lot of pain and crying. And that's not bad. That's being honest with the situation. But the more he prayed, and the more he focused on God who was his refuge, the more confident he sounded. Spurgeon says, the voice of prayer soon awakens the voice of praise. And so let us learn to live by faith in not only the grace that has brought us to Jesus, but to live by faith in future grace. 
the grace that God has promised to reveal in us when he comes again. I'll close by reading the line of a, an older chorus. He giveth more grace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit, His grace has no measure, His power has no boundary known unto man. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Father, we thank You that You give more grace, and we confess that we are in need of it. We face trials and troubles every day, though there are seasons of life that are relatively pleasant and free of pain and distress, we know that this side of glory there is distress waiting us. May we find you to be our refuge, our everlasting portion, and to know that even when we feel alone, when we feel unheard, when we feel deserted and attacked, that your presence is real and is more significant, more weighty, more powerful than anything we can face. Thank you for being for us our everlasting refuge through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.